Okay, guess what this show is brought to you by? Cash App. It's not bought to you, it's brought to you. It's brought to you by the Cash App, the number one finance app in the App Store. Yep, bip, bip, bip. Bip, bip, bip. (laughs) You know the Cash App, and you know that it's the easiest way to send money to your friends, but Cash App does way more than that, exclamation mark. Cash App also comes with what? Cash card, which I had and used today. (laughs) On what? Coffee, you save. Oh, right? The one that you left your credit card at the... Yes, that was so traumatic. <laughs> you were being such an asshole this morning. Okay, first of all, <laughs> I think me leaving my wallet is equal to you being panicked about Christmas lights. <laughs> Let's just say that's fair. It's a free debit card, <laughs> and it comes with boosts, which are like instant rewards for shopping at the places you already love. You can get up to 10% off your entire purchase at DoorDash. You can even save every time you shop at Whole Foods, Target. Are we allowed to do that? And more. If you're gross. Yeah. <laughs> Cash App is the easiest way to try and grow your money with their new investing feature. I love this. Unlike investing tools that force you to buy entire shares of stock, lame, Cash App lets you invest in as little or as much as you want. This way you can still own a piece of any stock with just one dollar. That's all I have. So that's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Brokerage services are provided by Cash App Investing, a subsidiary of Square member of SIPC. I'm also excited to be working with Cash App to support one of my favorite organizations. What is it? <laughs> the Trevor Project. Yeah? Read yes. The, read the rest. Let's see what you got. Um, uh, you're excited to be working with the Trevor Project. When you sign up for the Cash App and use the promo code Whitney, not only <laughs> no, do you, you instantly, instantly receive $10, $10 but Cash App will also donate $10 to the Trevor Project, an amazing organization that provides crisis intervention, suicide prevention services to LGBTQ youth across America. Podcast. You feel good? I don't. I. It's Christmas morning. If uh, this episode is coming out on Christmas morning, or yep, on Christmas, unless you're not celebrating it, then it's just the twenty (laughs) fifth. I can't believe you said that. Did I ever tell you about how I got in trouble for saying "Merry Christmas" to someone in an office? No, but I'd like to hear about it. Last year, I was working on a show, and as I was leaving on the eighteenth of December. Everyone's got decorations up. I walked out, and I was like, bye, guys. Merry Christmas. Like, I just said it. Okay? Yeah. That's what you say, right? And I come back from the holiday. January 6th, HR wants to talk to me. I go into the HR office, human resources, that is. I go in. (laughs) This woman's like, hey, one of the interns was upset that you said Merry Christmas. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Does she celebrate something else? Does she... Muslim, like, what did I, what is it, what? And the HR lady goes, no, no, she's agnostic. Happy pagan holiday. <laughs> I, was like, like, I was like, bitch, if I knew that that intern was agnostic, that means we're in an inappropriate relationship. That means we're together. Yeah. We're, I shouldn't know who believes in God and who doesn't on the staff. So you got in trouble for saying Merry Christmas. I got in trouble for Merry Christmas. See, in the South, that would not have happened. I used to get in trouble at the mall in my mall job for saying Happy Holidays because I was part of the war on Christmas. <laughs> You're a witch. You ever been part of the war on Christmas? No, I, don't think, I think. Maybe. Hard work. You're supposed to say Happy Holidays. Happy Holidays, which is nice. You holidays are the one thing you can blanket. Right. Happy Holidays. Whatever you like, do, happy, happy day. I don't want to get it wrong. But I also don't want to profile you. I also can't go up to someone and just be like, hey, happy, merry, oh, no, happy Hanukkah. Right. I could tell that by your face. I'm not allowed to do that either. I mean, that's like wildly offensive. It's super, I mean, honestly, you're lucky I said happy anything to you. Quite frankly. 
I How dare you? I could have just left. It's so, I mean, honestly, if your biggest problem is that someone on your work staff said Merry Christmas and it bothered you, I, I don't know how you're going to get through life. Did you get that person a Christmas gift? I, I didn't. But here's the other thing about that. You should get everybody else one and be like, but you don't want one, Why right? Why are you snitching? They're, we're in a snitch culture. You know I'm just going to confront you. I literally just went up to her. I was like, hey, did you have a problem with me saying Merry Christmas? And she's like, why? Well, I was like, just come to me. Be an adult. Were you their boss? Yeah. Okay, well, that's why they snitched <laughs> on you. I'm going to take you down. Uh, anyway, for those of y'all celebrating Christmas, not Christmas, whatever you're celebrating, for those of you who are celebrating Christmas, if you're anything like me, it's the 25th and you're on a walk. If you're anything like her, it's the 25th no matter what. <laughs> you're on a walk. At, in my household growing up, Christmas was tense. <laughs> it was all the relatives that tried to avoid each other all year. They would get together Christmas morning and things got tense. It's where all the all the resentments, the decades-long ancestral resentments would just come out and everyone would be super passive-aggressive the way that they opened gifts, you know? Like that's how everyone would show how they really thought about each other and would insult each other in like a backhanded way. Someone would open a gift, you know? I would watch this. Yeah. Uncle Nick opening a nice L.L. Bean shirt. So I'm be like, nice, nice shirt, Nick. You're going to need it since you're going to be single soon. <laughs> and everyone <laughs> would like fake laugh. And I was like, oh, that didn't. Bleh. Like all of it. It was so much like subtext and like underlying tensions, you know. And so everyone would have to go for a walk after we opened the presents. Brisk walk to like walk off the tension. So maybe that's what you guys are doing as you're listening to our podcast. Maybe you're on your walk in your new Nordstrom scarf. <laughs> Just trying to avoid <laughs> that aunt who regifted something to you. I like that. Did you go on walks in Tennessee? Oh no, um, my dad's handy capable, and walking is one of the things he's not capable of doing. Is handy capable the word we're supposed to say? No, we call him a cripple. <laughs> That's what he prefers. Okay, he can walk a little bit. Yeah, like with a big stick, like a wizard. He's oh, like he's the got... Gandalf of the sound. <laughs> Does it have a crystal on it? I wish. <laughs> That'd be so much cooler. Like David Bowie and Labyrinth? Oh, I really <laughs> wish that was, was happening. I love that movie. Um, I think that the holidays bring out control issues in a lot of people. Like, if you have control issues, which I do may, not. may or may not have. Never seen it. Never heard of it. <laughs> I don't know her. Um, I think that the holidays bring out our control issues. Like, Christmas morning was the most high stress time because it was the time of year where there was the most trash to clean up. <laughs> so everyone got super stressed. My mom used to hover over us with a black trash bag as we were opening our gifts. You could not even enjoy the Bonnie Bell lip smackers. You could not even enjoy whatever you were opening. Bonnie Bell lip smackers. <laughs> I always got one of those gift bags. You've got one right there. Coca-Cola lip smacker. Give me that. Look at Benton's got Coca-Cola I have every flavor, chapstick. vanilla. Is not the most Tennessee shit you've ever seen? Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> A dollar. <laughs> so my mom would hover over us like a goblin in the night holding a black garbage bag during Christmas, every holiday photo we have around the Christmas tree, we're all like in our little Christmas PJs and we've got our hot cocoa and we've got our gifts. And my mom is just holding this like giant trash bag and we had to unwrap and the wrapping had to go right in the bag. It wasn't even allowed to hit That's the That's how your mom controlled Christmas? That's how my mom had to See, control Christmas. My mom controlled Christmas through a small Christmas village that has now taken over our entire living room. What, it's like a, it's a village furniture? of little glass people in like 
Macy's and like all these little places and like buildings. Yes, it's a village of people, like a little village. And I, it gets weirder every year. Last year I went and I was like, "Mom, is that Yoda in the pond?" And she's like, "He's skating." And I was like, "Yoda's not real." She's like, "Neither is that village." And I was like, "Whatever makes you happy, I guess." Psychotic. I think that. Um, yeah, I was reading up people that collect dolls and stuff. They have control issues. It's a way they're able to control people because they can't control what's going on outside. So your mom's probably uh, she wants them to have really good lives too. She like she's like there's like a whole she's like they they don't go together. These go. I'm like okay, crazy. Or, it's beautiful how, though. I feel like your mom and I are more similar, similar than I care similar. to admit. <laughs> I feel like I'll have it's a strange very soon. Um, I'm already mourning the Christmas tree. I have a very love hate relationship with the christmas tree nothing brings me more joy than a christmas tree it's my two favorite things nature and sequence in one place it fills up my heart i love a tree you love it but i have such anhedonia about the christmas tree because the day after christmas makes me sick the day after christmas i despise the christmas it's a chore it's like a it's like a nasty hooker you can't get out of your house like get this drag queen back in nature (laughs) It's like a, a really sparkly hassle. Because yeah, all I'm thinking about is that I have to take it down. I'm thinking about, oh, i got to take the, the ornaments off, and they're all going to break, and the needles are all dry. It's like, you, it's like they're like, the tree's like a million heroin needles just going into your hands. Christmas trees, after their, after their beauty, they're, they're literally just a hassle. They're a hassle. That's all they are. Yeah. Removing them, it's just, it's amazing. It's just like overnight. It's like a one-night stand, you know, who won't leave. You walk by it, you don't even want to look at it. But that's the thing about holidays. They all end in like a traumatic cleanup. Um, so it is the 25th when this comes out, but you might be listening to this 26, 27, 28. I don't know. We're going to do a couple gift ideas, gifts I like to get, because maybe you got a gift card. Maybe people got cash. Maybe people's grandma wrote them a check for $37. Grandmas always write the weirdest <laughs> amount of money. <laughs> Your $7 check. What am I going to get with that? I would always get checks. Still better than a regift. I would though. always get checks for like $18. How dare you? You take it back. No. Take it I'm back. I'm not. We've Benton, thought about this for months. Take it back. I strongly believe in regifting. I support it. I condone it. It's my cause. I do not. <laughs> it's my cause. <laughs> regifting is so fucking rude. It is so eco-friendly all and thoughtful. What do we learn? <laughs> all you're saying is that I don't have time to think about you or care what you like. Here's a bubble. No, it's saying I got this gift. I'm going to sacrifice keeping it for myself and I'm going to give it to you because I am kind First and thoughtful. First of all, you're not sacrificing any of the gifts you get that you like. Okay, that's number one. <laughs> Second of all, you don't want the gift and you're on the way out and you're like, shit, Cheryl's going to be there. What am I going to bring her? Do you have friends named Cheryl? How Bro, old are the Cheryl people Crow, you're hanging out icon with? Icon legend Oh, star. she's coming on the podcast. Doesn't she want to come on the podcast? Cheryl with an S. Texter. Uh, <laughs> Cheryl with an S is very different than Cheryl with a C. Of course Which they are. one? Cheryl with a C has the short hair and the I back. Need to, I need front. to visualize your hypothetical friend. Doesn't the point is I would never re-gift to Cheryl because that's disrespectful. And I care about her wants, her needs, and her likes. It is not disrespectful to re-gift. It is disrespectful. My family re-gifting was the fabric that kept us together. I used to open gifts growing up that had been around the house for years. Like my, that make it okay. <laughs> my parents would wrap shit up that was on bookshelves and stuff, like ashtrays and little mini horses and like coffee table books. And I remember one year, one of my aunts, I was in Roanoke, Virginia, and she gave me Vita Bath. Remember that stuff, Vita Bath? She gave me a Vita Bath, like a like a bath gel that oh. I had given her the year before. 
and see what that says. None of you wanted it. No thought went into that. Nobody wanted the gift. It's more like a trading. It's more like a, can you hold this for me for you? I think it's passive aggressive. It's like, remember the shitty gift you got me? I'd like to give it back. No, it's but I no, that's called active that's aggressive. A- There's nothing passive about giving someone a gift that they, you know, know that you know you gave them. But I think that re-gifting is underrated and shamed. And I don't appreciate it, and I think you're a snob. It's wrong. <laughs> I put a lot of thought into gifts. I'm like, what do you like? Yeah. What do you want? You know, because if you just re-gift something, there was no thought for that person. No, but I could have thought about who I was going to re-gift it to. That was about you. It was just about you. How do I get this out of my house? That's what it was. How do I get and this out like of And like a good person. All right. You're on to something there. Here's the thing. Because the thing about re-gifting is... The other person, they're going to feel fine. They're going to love the gift. Yeah. You should feel bad. You're the one that should feel bad about it. Why? Well, you I don't care about your friend. I, <laughs> I care enough, but also part of the gift, if you want to give me a gift, let me re-gift. Let me get some clutter out of my house. If I want to give you a gift from my heart, like you give me some <laughs> trash you don't want. <laughs> it's not trash. One time as a wrap gift, I got a Kindle. And I gave it to someone. Is Kindle a good gift? Kindle's a great gift. It's an expensive gift. Now you tell me if I'm in the wrong. I gave someone a Kindle. They don't know where it a came good from. A gift does not mean a thoughtful gift. That's the difference. The gifting is about the thought that goes into it. A Kindle that you. Oh, Benton and his like, synonyms. Benton vernacular 101. I'm just letting you know how I feel. These are my feelings and my emotions. Okay. Well, your feelings what are, are your gifts for your this feelings year? are broken. Let me first of all. <laughs> don't say that. <laughs> I'm not broken. Okay. Listen to me. I give you a Kindle. You listen to me right now. <laughs> listen to me, Benton. Focus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just noticed that you have blue eyes. <laughs> really? And it really threw me off. You, I just got lost in your they're always close, baby blue eyes. You're always crying. <laughs> <laughs> they're just such small eyes. They're like Taylor Swift eyes. No, I don't think you have small eyes. Yeah. yeah. I really? did a photo shoot and, and somebody said, can you open your eyes? <laughs> and I was like, I'm trying. This is it. Did you have too much salt last night, sir? No, I, I give you a Kindle. I had one an iPad. Okay. Well, you're a brat. <laughs> You, Brenton has gone very hot. Brenton? Brenton, what? Oh my God, I'm literally leaving. <laughs> that was a stutter. You know I know your name. <laughs> you know, when I first met you, I, you told me to look at something on your phone, and I looked, and my name was spelled B-E-T-N. <laughs> I had to change it without telling you. Just want you to know that. Because <laughs> I think I wasn't trying to spell it. I was like, I know there's a B, an E, an N, and a T, and an N. You just need the sounds, but to N. I don't know what order the vowels go in. So I'm just going to abbreviate them. Um, I give you an iPad. iPad's not an example because this actually happened. I give someone a Kindle. Great gift. Luxurious gift. Generous gift. Mm -hmm. Then I get a call two weeks later from the person that I had given the Kindle to. He called me and was like, did you buy me this? And I was like, what do you mean? It was a wrap gift that was given to me and my name was monogrammed on the back. How'd you spin that? I was like, look, dude, what's the difference? Who cares? Why are you being a bitch about this? I just, I just explained why people care. Here's <laughs> what you should have said. You should be like, you know what? At checkout, I probably thought I was typing in something else. And it oh, now you want me to lie? Yeah, I'd rather you lie than be a bad person. <laughs> no, said You're going to make it in Hollywood. You're going to make it with that mentality. <laughs> Here's the only gift I want. <clears throat> I'm clearing my throat. I'm sorry I'm clearing my throat so much. I think that I, um, uh, I'm trying so hard not to make these sounds. I noticed in the podcast I smacked my mouth a little bit. So now I'm trying to clear my throat. <clears> throat> That's okay. I make noises all the time on the podcast. I know you do, but I'm trying to minimize. 
huh? acid reflux, so it's like a little ground. Oh my god, you and your fake acid reflux. It's not fake. <laughs> it kills people. Benton has much acid, you guys. Every time I see you, you you have asthma, you have acid reflux. Those are all facts. <laughs> what is your gift idea? The gift <laughs> the, the gift idea I have. This is the number one gift idea. If you haven't given someone a gift yet, if you're anything like my family, you'd have to have five different Christmases because there's so many people that won't talk to each other. <laughs> and there's so many people that are in weird new marriages and secret families and stuff. So I would do Christmas one place on the 25th. Then I go somewhere else the 26th, somewhere else the 28th. You got a lot of Christmases, right? So I'm sure some of y'all are still buying some last minute gifts. Number one gift, candle. Not only... Is that the number one gift? There's, I have a little, I have a little garnish to put on it. Purchase the candle with a nice matchbox. Makes all the difference. Thought, all the thoughtful. Difference. This is thoughtful. Nice matchbox to go with the candle is the key because you buy someone a candle. The whole point is to relax them. But then you ask for matches. That never goes well. Always gets awkward. When have you ever asked for a matchbook from someone and it didn't? get awkward and spiral into some weird conversation about where he's been last night. Hey, can I get some matches? Uncle Ned is like, yeah, here, here we go. His wife's like, why, why do you have Cracker Barrel matches? Where'd you get those? Why, that's, they and why did you go without me? Yeah, and we don't have a Cracker Barrel here. It's two towns over, right? Uncle Nick pulls out some matches from Howard Johnson's. And I was like, what are these matches? Why, why are they wet? And why do they smell like white wet? claw? Like, what are these? <laughs> Matchboxes always cause a fight because it reveals the bad choices you've made in the last couple months. No one ever gets a matchbox from a good decision. That's true. It's never happened. Buy a cute little matchbox on Amazon with a little design on it. A little something, something. And that's- Solve all your problems. Could you imagine that would win the candle? <laughs> Um, do you have some gift ideas, Matthew? I do. I people? am a big fan. I think plants are a great gift. I agree. Nobody wants to buy them, but they are the gift of oxygen. So I think we should just... That's a very good idea. I, I, I love plants around the house. I never think to buy them for myself, but I do have... I got a money tree. It's a great one. Pet friendly, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Be careful with your plants. Yeah. That's a pet friendly one. It's a really good one. It's inexpensive. Cactuses I uh, like. Succulents cactuses. I like. Um, a dino plant is the coolest freaking plant. I've never heard friendly. of that. Okay. It's a plant that can completely dry up. Also, it predates the dinosaurs, by the way. It can completely. By the way, the other day, Benton um, told me that he hates dinosaurs. I, I'm terrified of dinosaurs. But they're Not dead. The you know they're gone. For now. You're just terrified um, of the idea that they want yes, to Yes, people want to bring... Let's that, not get into that. That's too traumatic. Okay, next time, though. I fully uh, <laughs> believe we need to... If if we can bring dinosaurs back... Do not! I'm very conflicted about it. The dino plant... Okay, sorry. ...is a plant that can completely dry up into a little ball, and then as soon as it touches water, it completely blooms back out again. Like, it's completely... F- it's alive again. I feel like you're describing your childhood. Blossoming? And <laughs> that I just blossomed. <laughs> Me. Do you see yourself It's such a good plant. plant. It's so inexpensive. Okay. You should look at it. Dino plant. Um, all right. We'll put up an image of the Dino plant in case you guys can't find it or Google it yourself, which I'm sure you can. And a bird nest fern. Oh, that's that's plant friendly. Good What's look. that? A bird nest fern. It's like a fern, but it's like wavy, so it's a little more interesting. Oh, I like that. Okay. Pet friendly, too. Plants are good. They're hard to wrap, but they're a good gift. What else? Pre-wrapped uh, online. There's a couple gifts I'm going to recommend. You guys are always asking me about what gifts. You want me to rec- uh, What gifts? You guys are always asking me about what books you want me to recommend, and I'm going to tell you a couple. Pull over. Get out your Sharpie. Get out a crayon. Write these down. You guys keep asking me for my book recommendations. I'm going to give them right now. Listen up right now, okay? Here we go. If maybe you got a gift card to Amazon, gift card to Barnes & Noble, assuming that's still a company, local bookstore, 
got some cash from your grandma. Number one gift I like to give if I'm giving a book is, it's called The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker. It is all about learning to believe your fears, not fight them. Everyone I know is like, I'm trying to overcome my fears. Why? Fear is good. Fear serves an important purpose. It makes you move away from the guy with the meth eyes in the alley. Fear serves an important, important purpose. <laughs> it's an important part of everybody's life. <laughs> oh, gosh. I need a sip of Wawa. I had books on mine, too. Yeah? It's a great gift. What's uh, your favorite book to um, I like autobiographies because, to me, they're like self-help books from people you respect kind mm-hmm. of in a way. Mm-hmm. I, like Joan Rivers, Enter Talking. I think everybody should read that book. Yeah. Especially if you want to be any kind of entertainer or you feel like you're failing at something. It's the best book. Uh, I love Joan Rivers so much. She, uh, My first big thing was the Joan Rivers roast. And I remember my first joke for Joan Rivers. I, I knew I was like, this could go either way. I think I had read that book by then and I had known how sort of cool and self-aware she was and um, how willing she is to let people take shots at her, which mm-hmm. is such a big part of her charm. She could give it, but also take it. But my opening joke for the Joan Rivers roast was, um, Joan, I loved you in The Wrestler. And it there was like a delay <laughs> before people got it. And that was the scariest like two seconds of my life. And Good then joke, she just though. died laughing. I remember I did a joke. There's probably all these jokes that I said I probably could never really do today. I said, Joan... Joan Rivers is so old, her vagina has a separate entrance for black cocks. <laughs> Merry Christmas, <laughs> everybody. That's a good joke. I don't know if I could even do that joke today in this climate. Um, oh, one of the gifts that I would give, getting the love you want. If you have a friend who is constantly in toxic relationships or toxic friendships, honestly, we talk about that a lot on the show, getting the love you want. Worst title for the best book. Get it. Fixed me. Changed my life. I want to get love that I want. Yeah? So I'm going to get that book. Okay. You should read it. It's right there. It's on the table. Oh. It's been sitting there every day. (laughs) I'm going to take it. Get the love you want. Get that Tinder profile fired up. What's another book you want? Um, I really like Calypso by David Sedaris. Any David Sedaris book, just buy all his books, put them in their house, put them in your house. (laughs) Put them in someone's house. Put them in someone's house. And they will look great. They will look. It's a good gift to give people to make them look smart, to make you look smart. Even if you never read it. And they're hilarious I know. He's so talented. I'm fascinated. I would love to have Amy Sedaris on the show. I'm such a big fan. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm fascinated by when there's more than one successful kid in a family. It's crazy. Is that crazy? It's wild. Like, I've told you this before. Lisa Kudrow's brother is one of the best migraine doctors in the world. Yeah. Is that fascinating? she's Lisa Kudrow, so. And he's like the Lisa Kudrow of migraines. Is that crazy? I wonder who was who was uh, successful like that first, him or her? her I don't pressure? know. I know that her father was a doctor, so I don't know how you gauge being successful as a doctor. You know, I yeah, know I that when you either. get on a TV show, you're famous. I don't know. I just assumed if you're on Grey's Anatomy, you're like the most successful doctor. <laughs> um, the last weird little gift I'm suggesting, which is a uh, more of a stocking stuffer. It's more of a gift to yourself. <laughs> it's something that kind of changed my life this year. It's going to sound very weird. <laughs> This is not on Oprah's gift list. Is lithium? <laughs> what? I think you should go buy yourself some lithium with that twelve dollars your granny gave you. I started taking those over-the-counter uh, five milligram lithium pills. You know what lithium is? It's um. I thought it was an Evanescence song. 
It's an Evanescence song. Lithium. That's it. <laughs> well, okay, that song is undoing all the effects that actual lithium is doing <laughs> on the brain. It helps with mood. Uh, lithium at high doses is prescribed to people with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. It's that's not what I'm talking. I'm talking about just like a trace dose every day lifts your mood a little bit. Don't you? Don't you think I'm? So you're micro dosing lithium. I am. Look at this sweater. I'm wearing a pink sweater. I know. Who's ever seen you in a pink sweater? I'm so jaunty now. I'm so fun to be around. Aren't I fun? Yeah, you're fun. You when are you fun. When you first met me, I was in bad shape. I thought you were fun, though. Really? Well, yeah, because I thought you were cool. So I was. I know, but in my I head, was, I was like, "This bitch is fun." I was in a bad place mentally, a little bit, and, and also I, very sick. I was so <laughs> like sick, deathly ill. Oh, I was so sick. I was like the grandpa in Charlie's in the Chocolate Factory when you met me. I was always in bed, just like Ugh. literally, I'd like bring, bring me soup. the golden ticket. <laughs> But I started taking lithium. It's been a big part of my just like general mood boosting. I feel better. Lithium is really interesting. You know that scientists are working on it to see if it can cure the cell death that occurs in like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. It's like a super drug, mineral. Super drug, mineral. Yeah. I think you can call it a drug. Yeah. I don't know um, what you would. Ex- I, so it helps with depression. Basically. Yeah. Get lithium for yourself. That's a gift to yourself. How about that? That's a great gift for you. Do you have any other gift ideas? Yeah, the best gift you can get yourself is to come see Whitney on tour. Oh, we're going on tour. That's the best gift you can get yourself or your family members. What's the name of the tour? How dare you? How dare you tour? How dare you tour? Who do you think you you are? That is a great gift. I'm about to do uh, 25 cities? 24 cities? 25 cities. 25 cities. WhitneyCummings.com. Get your tickets. You can see me. I'm in Royal Oak, Michigan. I'm in Connecticut. I'm in Vegas. I'm in Tampa. I'm in um, Clearwater. I'm in Orlando. I'm in Phoenix. 25 great cities. I'm going to many cities. Get your tickets. Come see us live. Live and in person. (laughs) That's what, same thing. Okay. Anyway, we got to get to the interview. We have an incredible interview this episode. As a Merry Christmas to y'all. It's amazing. It's Ronan Farrow. How did we get Ronan Farrow? I don't know how you got him. <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> I, I was like, wait, are you sure? Are you mixing up podcasts? I was spooked when you got him. I was like, what? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was panicked. I was like, I better go read a dictionary. <laughs> I was looking through the dictionary. My word a day calendar. <laughs> I know. I was just like, well, let me like learn how to read. <laughs> Because Ronan Farrow is a literal genius. Uh, as you probably know, Ronan won a Pulitzer Prize. Not even confident that I'm pronouncing that right. That's how far away from winning a Pulitzer. Pulitzer. Ugh, that I am. Well, he'll tell us. Um, he won a prize for that New Yorker article, the one exposing Harvey Weinstein, uh, which like shook society. And in the book, he talks about how he had all the details of that story ready to go and NBC would not let him air it. The the amazing thing about Ronan Farrow is that the behind the scenes of the reporting is almost as mind blowing as the actual reporting. I mean, the um, uh, Harvey Weinstein can worm fat and worm of a man. He hired former Mossad agents to basically stalk and follow Ronan Farrow. I mean, it's I got a carpal tunnel, like <laughs> like turning the pages of this book. I was so fascinated. Um, he talks about the Harvey Weinstein story, Matt Lauer. There are some there is some tea 
Some tea is spilled in this book about the Matt Lauer stuff. Uh, and he also has a podcast called Catch and Kill. The name of the book is Catch and Kill. I'm pretty sure I already said that. And so is the podcast. And the podcast is like, it's one of those podcasts that as soon as it comes out, I listen to it no matter what I'm doing. <laughs> like it comes up because I'm subscribed to it. I was definitely a little bit nervous because I didn't want to make too many jokes about such a serious subject Oh, yeah. Matter. But we also have to find some levity and be able to have these conversations true, true, true. without, you know, it's yeah. one of those books where you're like, it's such a good book, but also horrible. Also, this all happened, you know? <laughs> yeah. So it's it's incredibly riveting, but also the added bonus of being true. Um, we get into the nitty-gritty uh, of all of it, but yeah, it's not too serious, but about very serious subject matter. How, yeah. do, you, how do you feel when? Oh, I thought it was great. I mean, I could listen to him talk all day. He was wonderful. I know. He's so... I, there's so much more that I wanted to ask him, but he said he would come back. All right. Without further ado, my friend, uh, a hero to me, a genius, a legend, Ronan Farrow. Where, where are you going to start? Do we, where do we even start? We've known each other for a while. We have. We really have. Yeah. I, did I know... I don't think I knew... I knew John before I knew you. Yes. Did I ever know John when he wasn't with you? I think I did. It's been so long. I'm so old now. You are. I was going to say something. You have not aged. You are aging backwards. You are Benjamin Button. I'm I'm Benjamin Button. I I have an age as I have nine lives. Am I going to be old man baby Brad Pitt soon? Because I want to be. Does everyone ask you who's going to play you in the movie of this? Uh, yeah. Who's, who is it? Um, I should pick someone really funny. I should have a good answer to that. Can you write me a joke in response? Michael Pitt? Is I've... Shiloh Jolie. Shiloh Jolie is a great <laughs> choice. Uh, by the way, very flattering. And Thank should you. be like 14. Just yeah. to lean into the joke that everyone thinks you're so you know, It takes young. a long time to make movies. That so. could be a good... Oh, I've cast the whole movie, by the way. Great. Yeah, and we'll get Honestly, to Honestly, you should just produce that shit. I think I'm going to. Um, I will, of course, play Lisa Bloom. You... <laughs> Uh, I know, honest, I know, I know. Honestly, <laughs> I know. I love a little Whitney acting. I know. <laughs> it should happen more. Uh, and I, I could see Lisa Bloom. Which I, this is so important. And this is, I'm just going to jump in. You know, I've spent the last two years, for the most part, fighting with my guy friends about this sexual harassment, assault reckoning, global reckoning. Okay. And I spend most of the time you know, debunking a lot of their fears, you know, you know, they're being dismissive about about people. And I think something that's so important about this book, Catch and Kill, which, by the way, I have almost every page earmarked. Look, that's at, very moving to me, Whitney. Look at this. Look at all my notes. This is I mean, these are the scribblings of a mad lady. But I mean, I have notes on every page. I've she really read circled it. Circled things. I really I this is the first book I have finished in years. I mean, maybe like 12 years. This makes my day. You know, it's there are so many real life people and such high real life stakes yeah. that I was very careful to put the reporting first. Obviously, it had mm. to be bulletproof from a fact checking standpoint. Yeah. But there was a lot of craft involved in also trying to put that information into a shape that was accessible and people would connect with. Right. Oh, it is. It. I did not pee. When I was reading this book, a friend of mine was like, you need to get up and pee. And I was like, I can't. Like, I can't miss this. This work just Lisa Bloom just called back, you know. And but I, I'm bringing up Lisa Bloom first because I think, you know, a lot of people think that this moment is a binary moment. Men versus women. It's not in this book. Uh, you know, some men are the biggest heroes and some women are the biggest villains. You know, this isn't um, all men are bad. So. Oh, yeah. I get the question all the time. Well, what do you think of these women who helped aid and abet predators? Mm-hmm. And I honestly, I never 
framed it in that way in my mind because, first of all, there's a really solid uh, gender mix of evil people. That's right. This is I about good versus evil, not men versus women. Uh, right. And, and you know, the Lisa Bloom's gender is so far down on the list of significant traits uh, that yeah. made her so ethically compromised. <laughs> like, it's just not yeah. even a thing that I would have thought of. Right. Um, and, you know, the hypocrisy runs rife with guys who claim to be principled, too. So Right. right. But it's just, you know, uh, Rich McHugh, who we'll talk about, who's one of your producers at NBC, um, uh, Remnick, who was the uh, editor of the New York, our heroes. So, guys, calm down. We love men. No one's attacking There's men. There's great guys in here. <laughs> There's great guys in here. Most men are great. And lots and lots of brave women. Yes, co- correct, which we will get to. Um, casting Rich McHugh, because I want everyone to have, like, a visual as we go through this. Sean Astin. Oh, my God. That's damn it. Not I thought I had a good one. Who, who are you? I was going to pitch Mark Ruffalo and Steve, or Steve Coogan. Not as good. Not as good. No. <laughs> Steve Coogan, that's, that's, a, uh, that's a real curveball. It is. I, that. I, I don't know what he looks like. So that's just <laughs> me based on just, like, reading about him. And then um, Andy Lack, who uh, is a monster. I'm allowed to say it. You probably aren't. I can. Um, Andy Lack is another person at NBC who tried to squash um, these stories, despite the incredible amount of riveting, shocking evidence that you had. Um, is he Jeff Goldblum or Val Kilmer or uh, Mitch McConnell? Merrill. <laughs> Fantastic. Right? Yes. I mean, if she doesn't want yes. Harvey, which obviously yes. she's going to get the offer. So true. It might be too close to home, though. No, for Harvey, we should cast the blob from Big Trouble in Little China. I'm sure it's still in a warehouse somewhere. I can't laugh at that. I know you can't. I have to not demonize. I know. You know he's a complicated figure uh, who did a lot of crimes. And we're going to talk, <laughs> talk about Harvey quite a lot. Um, but I want to say something that, to me, one of the most important sentences in the book, to me, you'll never guess what it is. And there's no point of me quizzing you. Okay. Besides your proposal to my very good friend, John Levin. Um, which I love that he said, sure. <laughs> that is so John. <laughs> well, he also, I think I excluded from the final edit, the, the full sequence was I had this cute idea of putting it in the draft and then asking him for notes on the draft. Right, right. Uh, and then he... Which did- John Levin notes, as you all know, of Pod Save America infamy. I wouldn't even want his notes. I'm sure he would hurt my feelings. Oh, he's brutal. Brutal. And, and like, it's not just a content thing. It's mm-hmm. actually that he doesn't know how to deliver the notes without getting very strident about it. Yes. And he's so direct and he's so obsessed with justice and he so ha- doesn't have time for, you know, trivial things like right. emotions. Right. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> or feelings. No bedside manner. Yeah. But they're great notes. Always. Always. Great notes. Always. So I asked him for notes. He's a very busy guy. He's a podcast mogul. Mm-hmm. Second only to you. Mogul. Oh, no. I don't have an umbrella. I don't have an umbrella of pods. Right. Yeah. He has a pod. None uh, of my pods are He's a pod despot. He really is. He really is. And so Isn't it took Isn't there like an time. antitrust law here? It's, we, they must be stopped, honestly. <laughs> we stop crooked media. Uh, so it took him months, and then uh, he was very generous and did read it, but he skimmed it so fast that he came back at me and he's like, you know, I have this note and that note and the other note. And I'm like, what did you think of the end? You put yourself out there. And he's like, why? What? What's at the end? I'm like, the question? He's like, wait, do you, do you propose to me in this book? I'm like, spoilers. <laughs> Go, I, I'm not answering that question. You need to read the draft. And then he texted back, sure, or he put it in the draft? He said it. He said it. He said it. Okay, sure. Anyway. Right. Totally. <laughs> and actually then... 
there was this awkward process of like the the editors and fact checkers and lawyers all knew about the proposal before he did. Yeah. And it had to be in the draft with like a fact checking TK, mm-hmm. like like a Wikipedia style pending confirmation right, parenthetical. Right. And I'm like, he's gonna respond at some point. Right. We'll just cut the graph if he says no. <laughs> like I'm not gonna keep in a and then he said, not so much. I love him so much. But um, by the way, can I get more volume in my headphones? By any claiming chance? a space, he's claiming a space. He knows gotta, what he's. I gotta doing. lean in. It's he knows a what he's doing. He is leaning in. I hard. like headphones, but I think you have bad headphones. I mean, not the hardware, but like what? the setup is not. Trust me. After last time we went through this, I mean, I don't even know if they're plugged in. I don't know what's happening with I, these headphones. Yeah, am I, I think not? I'm being sabotaged. I think I'm, says, I feel like Noah I Oppenheim like has a, cut the audio <laughs> of. Our headphones. It's part of the part of the production of Jackie too, <laughs> which I need people to understand. When you're reading this book, there's so many riveting things about it, and there's so many things that it's just like so hard to believe. And you put the facts out in such a way that they can just speak for themselves. And I think this Noah Oppenheim, this guy who's a producer at NBC, who kept squash the, the president of NBC, the president of NBC, um, is he? Uh, who's he going to play? Who's going to be played? Um, play him. Rowan Atkinson, uh, a actual ball of slime. Well, John actually suggested another curveball, Matthew McConaughey. Oh, because he has a little bit of a. First of all, you have to love him at first, right? Okay, for the plot to work. Okay, as I did. You have to. We have to be kind of. Yeah. You have to see that I look up to him and I think he's cool. That makes sense. And and he has a. You know, I think I describe him as being a, a doe-eyed stoner. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the lack of backbone and complicity was was shocking. So it can't be someone who betrays that immediately. I just can't picture uh, Matthew McConaughey writing a script <laughs> about <laughs> you. Don't think Matthew Jackie McConaughey Onassis. could write Jackie? <laughs> I don't know. I'm sorry. I, th- I Jack think Jackie D. feels Jack like D. Matthew McConaughey wrote it. <laughs> Which, by the way, it's already a red flag that the president of NBC wrote a movie about a woman who's crying for two hours. Like, why is that the story you're choosing to tell, dude? Why is that something you're so passionate about telling? I didn't realize until I went through all the transcripts. And by the way, this is better. Whatever you did, thank you. Did or nothing happened? No. Oh, you did. You fixed it. Thank you so much. They're they're turning fake knobs. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know whether this is a placebo. Am I being gaslit? Like, yeah, no, we changed it. It's good. I didn't realize until I got into the reporting and the reviewing all the transcripts and records and stuff how many people hated Jackie. And I actually, I have, I would say, mixed feelings about Jackie. Mm -hmm. She's great in it. Mm -hmm. The score is great. That's right. Great score. Yep. Um, That's what Mika Levy. That's what people say about movies they don't like. (laughs) Great score. Such a good score. Well, so the, the costumes were incredible. The first pass, the costumes were incredible, <laughs> though. And the first pass of the of the book, which was, I shit you not, a thousand pages. Can we curse on the pod? Yes, of course. Okay. Please. Actually, right, you do nothing but. I've seen, I mean, I've seen the clips. You, yeah, no, I don't curse. I mean, if you want to, you can. This, I mean, this is going to be the least <laughs> profane and also by far the least sexy episode of the Whitney pod. <laughs> oh, no, we haven't even really started yet. You just wait. Uh. Yeah, but people had these strong feelings about Jackie that I didn't expect, stronger even than mine. And the, the first uh, version of those, the edits of those scenes mm-hmm. had like a double punchline of the runner of people saying like, oh, Jackie. Yeah. And then me every time saying, 
But the soundtrack was the score great. Was great. <laughs> the score was great. I love the score. <laughs> um, I just, I as a uh, civilian of the United States, it bothers me that the president of NBC News has a side hustle of trying to write movies in Hollywood and covering uh, a, a business uh, in a biased way. I mean, how are you expected to objectively cover a business you're trying to get ahead in? Well, you know, I as with every part of the reporting, the book is really, really fair to Noah Oppenheimer. Very even-handed, and it gets in any kind of rebuttal that he has about defending his conduct here. But when I present these parts of who he is, that he had these dreams of success in Hollywood Mm -hmm. um, and was connecting with Harvey Weinstein in a certain way. Harvey Weinstein certainly, at the very least, was communicating with Noah Oppenheim in a certain way. He was expected, he was essentially signing up to cover a business or to cover Harvey Weinstein, a man whose approval and money he probably wanted. Right. It's been subsequently reported that Harvey Weinstein was interested in acquiring Jackie at one point. I mean, it is all very incestuous. Mm-hmm. And I present that, you know, with all the caveats of I wanted to believe. And in fact, it it never occurred to me that there would be anything but just a firewall between those parts of his life. Right. But I think the judgment that he had speaks for itself. And there there wasn't a firewall. And And it's the same thing for, you know, those college writings that I uncovered where he was saying, you know, women love to be pumped full of alcohol mm-hmm. and assaulted. And this is the man that runs NBC News, currently still works there. It's pretty crazy stuff, even for a, a senior at Harvard to mm-hmm. write, um, you know, just women are asking for it type arguments. He wrote and, that in the Crimson, the Harvard the Crimson, Crimson Journal. And would go to kind of feminist gatherings and pose as a supporter and then write these articles saying, you know, this is all bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, really had a very specific set of views about the value of women's voices mm-hmm. and the value of women's bodies and mm-hmm. autonomy and consent. Sounds cool. Sounds like a cool guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to get to what you just said about Harvey because, um, you know, you, there's a sentence in the book that was really powerful and, and you know, veracity comes first with you. Um, you wrote, after you got off the phone with Harvey, you gave him plenty of opportunities to weigh in. I, I, you were so fair to him that it was, you know, it was like a roller coaster. Every time you talked to him, it was like, oh, he, he, every, you gave him so many opportunities to um, weigh in. And you said that he's funny. And I think it's so important that people know that because, you know, a lot of these, you know, megalomaniac, narcissists, monsters are not just one thing. You know, I think it's hard for us as a species. It's almost our work, or we have our work cut out for us as a species to be able to believe that two things can be true at the same time. This is a man who is a complete monster who's committing these heinous crimes for 30 years, but was also funny and smart and engaging and sent gifts like, the, you know, the Grey Goose gifts. This was a man. I mean, there's no way he could have had this ascendancy without being charming. I, I mean, you read that email he sends Noah Oppenheim after Noah Oppenheim kills the story mm-hmm. saying, you know, Megan Kelly's new program is terrific. Mm-hmm. It's so smart. That's and right. there's a bottle of great goose. Yes, and, yes, yes. You know, in the calls he, he was, beguiles people in a very Yeah, and a lot of, you know, sort way. of dangling we should work together kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that that was his move. That's the way he operated. And I'm now doing this podcast, which is kind of a side quill to the book. It's yes. deep dive little true crime documentaries about characters in the book. Yep. Including some characters who wouldn't speak for the reporting. So we did this episode on a former Weinstein assistant who shows up briefly in the narrative as someone who is declining to speak, Rowena Chu. That's right. And she makes exactly the point you did. She Mm -hmm. talks about how you have to understand we were all there Mm -hmm. and in these compromised situations with him where we were vulnerable to attacks because he was charming and made you feel like you could achieve your dreams and 
was actually empowering in various ways to women around him professionally. Usually he'd say, what do you want to do? Do you want to be a producer? Do you want to be a writer? Do you want to be a director? You know, and, you know, I think that um, it's really important to, you know, mention that I'm always looking for ways to debunk people that want to dismiss these women in any ways. Well, I mean, it was obvious. Why didn't they just leave? Because it's so much more complicated than that. You know, you get Stockholm syndrome with someone who's really truculent and angry one minute and really charming and engaging in the other. um, Good use of truculent. Thank you. Very impressed. <laughs> Thank you. That's the word I think of when I think of Harvey Weinstein. No, it's really, it's really apt. You know, and um, you know, a lot of people listening might not, you know, have a, a, a personal experience with Harvey Weinstein. Is my guess if you're listening, but if you're listening, you probably know me a little bit. And I have a Harvey Weinstein story that might just help people get a little bit closer to this. Um, I did the Friars Club roast of Quentin Tarantino, and uh, I show up. Brett Ratner is there. Harvey Weinstein is there. Just monsters row of scumbag row. Brett gets a little cameo in. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. And um, when you talk about this being an open secret, like that word, you know, I try to get even more granular with it. It was not only an open secret. It was it was a it was so we were so surrendered to this that we actually made jokes about it. It was it was so crystallized. His tentacles were so crystallized across this business that there was no option of this ever being dismantled. You know, you coming in, it was you moved tectonic plates of something that was like um, to, uh, it never occurred to any of us that this would ever change that he was Hollywood. Well, it was he's Vladimir Putin and we are Russia. That is what Harvey Weinstein felt like in this business. Right. It was viewed as this unmovable part of the culture and the industry. But it's also important to draw the distinction. We were talking about this before. There's knowing and then there's knowing. That's right. That's right. And people lulled. People knew too much, Mm -hmm. but also not enough to force them to understand, oh, we're making a category error. That's right. You know, these are crimes that are happening. Mm -hmm. So so there was this. Okay, we've normalized uh, transactional sex, the casting couch, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, we crack jokes about it. That's like right. you were joking about it, Tina Fey was joking about it mm-hmm. for a year. You can find all these clips of people joking about it. Right. And it, it took these incredibly brave sources coming forward and saying this impossibly difficult thing, which mm-hmm. was, uh, no, he raped me. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I think that something's really important and why it's necessary everybody read this book and listen to the podcast is because I think the word sexual assault, um, you know, sexual harassment, they're kind of a Rorschach test. You sort of come up with what you think happened based on, you know, whatever social construction in your life or what's ever happened to you or it all triggers a lot in us, right? Defense mechanisms or, um, you know, holds up a mirror to whatever's happened to us. So a lot of, you know, um, I think people tend to minimize those words. The word rape is a word people don't like to say. It makes everyone uncomfortable. It's a bummer. But this is really important to read because it gets specific on what these crimes were, you know, especially since two years, there's been a reckoning with so many men. I think a lot of people, when they hear harassment, they think like, oh, he kept asking girls out. That's not what was happening. (laughs) That's not at all what was happening. These were violent crimes. Um, And something else that is so important that this book does, because, you know, um, a lot of people that want to assume there's this like stereotype that it's every woman's dream to like get assaulted so that they can win that lotto payday or something and cash out like (laughs) women are just getting in line to get assaulted so that they can you know retire these sources um we now know because of your reporting were trepidatious many did not want to participate there's this idea that women are like chomping at the bit (laughs) to come out against these men it's a living nightmare and that's something that is very apparent and that was part of Harvey Weinstein's response mm-hmm. through all of this, this idea that 
these events were being opportunistically recast by women out to make a buck or mm-hmm. increase their profile or mm-hmm. some or get revenge or something. It just never squared with the reality of my experiences working with those sources, which was I had to bang on doors for months yep. and and hopefully do it in a way that also, even though I knew it was terrifying for these people, gave them the space to make the decision. You weren't forcing but, them to. But <laughs> boy, were they ever not crying it from the mountaintops. I yeah. mean, they really went through an agonizing process of deciding whether they were going to upend their entire lives to tell these stories. And they would vacillate. Sometimes they were in, and then they were out, and then they were back in, and then they needed more time. And I mean, yeah, Rose McGowan is a great example, and her story runs through the book. And uh, honestly, like, I don't know that I would have been in a more stable place than Rose if I were going through what Rose was going through, Mm -hmm. which it comes to pass was she was being gaslit and Mm -hmm. there were spies after her and her new best friend turned out to be uh, an Israeli spy. You guys have to... Acting. You you have to read that. I mean, literally, (laughs) Harvey had hired a company to send a woman to befriend her, pretend she was a part of some woman's rights organization all just in order to procure passages from her forthcoming book to get it back to Harvey. Literally, you can't, it's to the unbelievable. point where Rose at one point says, you're the only person I can trust, Diana. Mm-hmm. I can't trust anyone. I can't trust my lawyers. There's a I woman can... hired by Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> She's like there, you know, recording, yeah. like yeah. putting her wrist with her recording device forward to send all of this to Rose's alleged rapist. I can't believe it. It's not, not a great thing to do ethically, it turns out. <laughs> Caspa, what accent is that? Caspa, you made that up. Caspa products, I love Casper. You know I have a Casper. Me too, love Casper. They're cleverly designed to mimic human curves, of which I have a plenty. Right? (laughs) Curvy, curvy (laughs) body like a back row. Supports all kinds of bodies. I love this. It's body inclusive. You spend one third of your life sleeping. I spend more probably. I don't. I spend way less. <laughs> yeah, you have none. Together we're... You've never slept a day in your life. <laughs> I hear it's great. People love sleeping. Uh, experts at Casp- Caspa work tirely to make sure the quality sleep uh, surface... It, oh, a quality sleep. See, I don't sleep enough. I need a, <laughs> I need a Casper so that I can actually read the Casper copy. It cradles your natural geometry in all the right places. Ooh, my natural... Ge- I'm going to start describing people like that. <laughs> Girl, that natural geometry you have. <laughs> The original Casper mattress combines multiple supportive memory foams for quality sleep service uh, with the right amounts of both sink and bounce. You my, do need my the, personality. You need <laughs> <laughs> breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature. That is the key to everything, isn't oh, it? Oh yeah. That is. I, I love that. It doesn't get too hot. These mattresses. Um, you can be sure of your purchase with Caspa's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. Wow, that's a power move. That's amazing. I think we need to talk about the hybrid, which combines the pressure relief of award-winning foam. Foam, that's what I'm into with durable yet gentle springs. That's what you are. You're durable yet gentle. Yeah, the best part of the Casper mattress, though, is it shows up in a box. That's by far the best I part. I know. And then Nothing. It, do you remember when you had to go to the mattress store and put, like, like an animal? Put on the top of your car and, like, psychopath. drive to the city with your mattress? That's disgusting. Wow. Get $100 towards select mattresses by visiting ksba.com slash Whitney and using Whitney at checkout. So casper.com slash Whitney. Terms and conditions apply. Lola. La, 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 la. It's a female-founded feminine care brand. My 
favorite sentence I've ever said. Offering high quality period and sexual wellness products made with natural ingredients. Finally, someone freaking did this. Lola's tampons, pads, liners, and cleansing wipes are all made with 100% organic cotton, no toxins, no synthetic fibers. Never been easier to try Lola, right? Never easier. <laughs> Are you going to read some of this? Yeah, but you haven't got to the part I'm supposed to read yet. No. Oh. Lola believes in total ingredient transparency. Did you know the FDA does not require brands to disclose comprehensive list of ingredients in their feminine care products, which is probably why I stutter and just said comprehensive because <laughs> I had tampons in the 90s when they were full of hormones, <laughs> chemicals and crap. That's why big brands often use disclaimers like may contain because they're sketchy. Lola makes period products with 100% organic cotton. Most brands use a mix of synthetic and just garbage and plastic and rayon and bullshit. Lola products, they are made with 100% organic cotton, never any toxins, dyes, fragrances, synthetic fibers, or clearing bleach. Ugh. Lola also offers two trial sets, each featuring a mixed assortment of period products made from 100% organic cotton for just $5. Both sets include six compact <laughs> plastic applicator tampons, one light, two regular, two supreme, and one super plus. I love Paired this with either two ultra-thin liners and two cleansing wipes. Ooh, I love this brand. I love not putting poison in my body. It's never been easier to try Lola. Get started with trial set today. You're going to get 30% off your $5 trial set, visit mylola.com, enter Whitney, redeem your offer, and don't get cancer. <laughs> this Harvey story, you know, just for people listening, you know, I, I just, you have a personal connection to me, maybe, so let me just tell you the story, just so you get an idea of the way this guy operated. And I didn't put this together until way later, um, but I do the roast. I have so many jokes about Harvey Weinstein that are just brutal. Again, it was people laughed at it. I mean, I did jokes like Harvey slept with so many actresses. He doesn't have the clap. He has the applause. I mean, I was doing jokes like that. I mean, of course, none of us knew that these were right. rapes, right. of course. Um, you know, I did a joke that was like Harvey's slept with so many actresses. Backstage West took out ad space on his taint. I remember hearing you make that choice. That, that was joke. a joke that I just made and everybody laughed, you know, and... You know, with girlfriends, we would literally sit around and, you know, a friend of mine was doing a Harvey movie and we go, bring your knee pads. Like, that's how resigned everyone was to it. That's how ubiquitous this was. Um, so I do the roast. That night we go to dinner. It's like me and Quentin and um, whatever, everyone. And Harvey's there. And I don't really remember talking to him, but we were kind of sitting near each other. All I remember is that he made the table laugh so hard. He was telling these big stories and cracking everybody up. And it was just like so charismatic, so engaging, funny, smart, of course, obviously, vicious, quick, remembered everybody's names. Mm -hmm. You know, he's like, Whitney, how's your sushi? Like he was just really, really quick, um, incredible brain. And then the next day I get a call for an audition for a Harvey Weinstein movie. And this is a movie that I don't, I don't know if it ever existed. I get a call for a Harvey Weinstein movie. And I'm like, I don't, like, I don't have the side. I'm not there. They're like, the sides will be there when you get there, which is very abnormal. That's very mm -hmm. unusual. Normally you get sides sent to you before, but this is like, I'm 24 years old. I don't know what's going on. I'm like, okay, it's a Harvey Weinstein movie. Everyone is very stressed out that's calling me about it. Whenever Harvey was involved in anything, people were just like, yeah. you know, you got to get to this meeting. And I'm like, what can I do it tomorrow? And then you got to go today. And everyone's like, I've never seen agents or anyone behave like this before. So I go to this place. I'm really nervous because it's I usually you get to prepare before an audition. I walk into this. 
and look, this may be me being paranoid, but I have cast things since. So I now know how casting is supposed to work. I now know that casting offices have like furniture and desks and people and chairs. I walked into this office. I just remember going, oh, they must have just moved in. But it was a totally empty room with no chairs. There wasn't a tripod and a camera set up. Most audition rooms have, like, lights. There's a, a ple- piece of blue paper in the background. Uh, normally the actor gets mic'd. It's, it's, there's other actors in the waiting room. Mm-hmm. I show up. It's just me. And the casting director is, like, I had never met before, is kind of frazzled and, like, forcing me to, like, read this thing. And is just filming me with a camera in her hand. Like, there, I've never had an audition before that or since. And I look back and I don't know if it was a real audition or not. I don't know. But I went in and then later they're like, oh, the movie's probably not happening or they haven't gotten financed. What were the sides? It was something about a babysitter. I think that's all. <laughs> Just Harvey Weinstein <laughs> writing two paragraphs so he can sexually harass I don't you. know. It was, yeah, it was a, a monologue of a, yeah, it just gave me a book to read where I just read War and Peace. No, I don't, I don't remember because it was a movie that never came out. And they were like, oh, it lost financing. Because that was the time where it was like, you know, I wanted a job. So I, I mean, like, that did happen a lot. Obviously, it happens in general a lot, but it especially happened a lot around Harvey in those days. I, I didn't put it together, no joke, till your article came out. And I was like, that probably wasn't even a real audition. Cause, and then I sort of did the math on it. But I don't, I don't know for sure. And then the next day, I want to say two days, maybe it was like two days later, I'm at the Comedy Store. I'm performing at the Comedy Store. I go on stage. And I remember the set being weird because I was wearing like sneaker wedges. And I like fell a little bit. So I ended up just like sort of joking around with the audience the whole time. I left... I get a call 10 minutes later from the manager of the comedy store, who is no longer the manager of the comedy store, so no one's getting in trouble here currently. And he was like, get back here. Harvey Weinstein came to see you. And I've known this man for 10 years. He was shrieking. I mean, this Harvey Weinstein was a man that terrified men that needed nothing from him. I mean, this was a, a gritty, brusque comedy club owner who had seen, you know, who carries drunk people out of comedy clubs that are trying to fight him, you know? And he's like, you need to get back here, right? Screaming at me. And just picturing Harvey sitting there, you know, having come to see me and wanting to get me back. I didn't go back because, no joke, I was too insecure because I wasn't wearing makeup. And I was like, I can't let Harvey White see me without makeup. Like, my vanity probably saved me. But this, just for people listening, like, this is a man that, like, hunted people. Yeah. hunted people. A lot of sources used that word. You know, this wasn't like a, oh, we were kind of flirting and then we both had different ideas of what happened afterwards. This is a man that went after women, banged down their doors. Women are putting furniture in front of their doors. This is a this is Darth Vader. This is a cartoon villain. It, and it's such a crazy experience as a reporter to have multiple women independently describe these eerily similar things. Women who have never spoken to each other. Mm hmm will just tell the identical story of, and then I pushed the furniture in front of the doors. You know, I know it sounds crazy. It was like in a movie, but I was so scared. And, and the traits you're talking about all inform each other. They're of a piece. He was a bully. It is ultimately a story about the abuse of power. Mm -hmm. And the fact that when we are afraid to question people at the top of whatever industry, sometimes people get hurt as a result because that's what unchecked power can do. Yeah. And, you know, it's just so fascinating to be in a business that makes all its money from making movies about taking down villains. No one could figure out how to do it when it was happening in real life. It's like a bunch of writers and producers that are all like making movies about how to 
take down a villain. I'm like, just do the th- what would your character in the script you just wrote do about this guy? Uh, we don't even know how to write those movies. Yeah. All the movies end with a giant column of light now. <laughs> so true. <laughs> I, a lot of people flying around in a column of light. I mean, this is a man who, what, what was the amphor? Did he steal $600,000 from AIDS? So there was this controversy on the board of Amphar, as you know, where funds were allegedly being redirected from the charity to uh, the production of Finding Neverland, Neverland. the yeah. Broadway version of Finding Neverland yeah. that he was doing. And I think his uh, explanation was that it was sort of designed to be joint fundraising, mm-hmm. but it was certainly it was regarded as shady yeah. within this board. and. Yeah. Um, as he's working overtime to suppress these allegations of sexual abuse against yeah. him, he's also trying to get the Amfar board to sign these crazy non-disclosure agreements right. and to kind of pay them out to get rid of that problem. Yeah. And eventually the House of Cards does, you know, start to topple. It's so important uh, how many things that this, you know, debunks, like, and how many things that came up that, that enraged me. You know, I'm obsessed with the things people say in order to kind of like get around having to confront sexual harassment. And I know it's a big thing. And sometimes we have to disassociate or sometimes we have to kind of, you know, I was talking to someone about um, one of these and they're like, God, well, just come on. That was 20 years ago. And it's so wild to me when people say that because I'm like, listen, to you're basically like, oh, like, oh, that we were in denial 20 years ago. Now we have to be in denial again. Like, this is exhausting. Like, think about what you're saying. Well, and there's this conversation now about how we should feel about time when it comes to yeah. these serious crimes. Mm-hmm. And there's all these jurisdictions saying, you know what, we're going to get rid of the statute of limitations mm-hmm. when it comes to sexual yeah. assault. And I think that's a pretty healthy conversation. And I think when you say this happened 20 years ago, all I think is, Think of all the people it's happened to since. Listen to what you're saying. <laughs> and that is such a big part of the motivation of so many of the people who ultimately spoke. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. the realization that whether it was just of their own volition staying quiet because they were justifiably frightened of right. the repercussions for them, or they signed some kind of a crazy non-disclosure agreement mm-hmm. and took a payout. Mm-hmm. I think for those people realizing that others were getting hurt Mm -hmm. while they grappled with the weight of silence changed everything. And now that it's been a couple of years since the first New Yorker article came out, now there's no, you cannot hold on to that logic anymore. There is no one who has come forward whose life has magically (laughs) gotten amazingly better. Like they are really martyrs in doing this for the next generation of women and to protect others. Like you don't come out and then all of a sudden you, like, get to star in Marvel movies. I think both things are true. It's been hard for a number of these women, particularly in Hollywood, mm-hmm. who spoke in these stories. And a lot of them still talk about, you know, not getting any work. They haven't gotten yeah. a single audition since the story. I hear those kinds of uh, accounts after the fact. But there's also definitely a contingent that's doing great. And yeah. I, I think that's important to note as well because the fears loomed so large mm-hmm. and – I have loved, as the reporter in that equation, having people come back and say, you know what, I feel a huge weight lifted. And look, it's complicated for all of them. But a lot of them have said it's better now. Mm -hmm. And some of them even, you know, their careers have been fine or better, that they've they've felt less paralyzed by this. They're able to work more. Well, I think it's that. I think it's just sort of the weight off their shoulders and this sort of healing moment. It's not like, you know, for people that 
think that this would be some kind of a career move or some kind of mercenary it's certainly not that thing for attention if you know the women that are thriving because of it is you know because they're healing and because they're moving past something and because the sort of evil powers that were you know smearing them are now gone yeah yeah a- and look it, in those cases which i wish were more common where uh, someone feels like their career has been in a good place since they did an incredibly brave thing yeah. and became a source in a contentious story. Uh, I I wish every industry would do more of that. Yeah. Um, you know, there are a couple of cases like an agent I used to work with. Um, I mean, you should get credit for this. Brian Lord mm-hmm. and his folks at CAA called Annabella Shiora, you know, right after she did this incredibly difficult thing of coming forward with a very, very violent well, By the way, it's really important for, you know, this is someone who's, when you first called, said, no, thank you, not interested. Oh, yeah. And did you, what did you feel when she said that? She was apologizing for not being able to help in a way... That made you think... That made me think that there was more there. And also, I had heard from so many people mm-hmm. that she had told this story consistently over the years. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, when someone is completely shut down like that, there's nothing you can do but give them space. Right. And thank God she then reconsidered later. And and her story, I think, has really inspired a lot of people. It's mm-hmm. It's a particularly brutal and awful one. And I think anyone who reads it or hears it will understand why she was reluctant to speak at first. Heartbreaking, embarrassing. That's that. That I think a lot of people don't understand that that it's no one's dream to go out in the world and have everybody know something that intimate about you. What she did is is heroic. She now has to walk down the street and everybody knows this awful thing happened to her. And she talked about that. She went into the decision mm-hmm. eyes open, and you know I think she's one of the people where the degree of trauma she she went through is so severe that there are good days and bad days and none of it is easy, even in an ongoing sense. And so it's been a wonderful thing that, um, you know, career-wise, it's not easy either. And Mm -hmm. she's supporting her kids. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, she did get new representation afterwards and people in the industry rallied around her a little Mm -hmm. bit. And, you know, she's been working again, Mm -hmm. which which is also great as a consumer of movies because she's a wonderful actress. I love seeing her. Harvey had also was after, you know, sexually assaulting her, was telling everyone she was difficult. Yeah. You know, he put people in an impossible situation. He would uh, assault them, then tell everyone they were difficult and then make it so it was impossible to get any kind of legal action and then were forced to sign these NDAs that made them always have to look over their shoulder and be paranoid. Completely. And I I really hope that pulling back the curtain on that and understanding that that was a real thing that was happening, Mm -hmm. the blacklisting and the smearing opens doors for a lot of people. I know it sounds like a movie. You know, it sounds like a movie, but these things were actually happening. Well, and when you talk to smart people who went through it, of course, the first thing they say is, I know I'll never be able to prove this. I remember Mira Sorvino, who's incredibly uh, intelligent and grounded, yeah. saying, you know, look, I'm going to be intellectually honest about this. I know when I say this, everyone's just going to say, oh, she, you know, she aged out of those parts, whatever. Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Uh, but then it, it wasn't true. You know, Peter Jackson came out and said, very, very helpful for the culture that he did Badass. this, came out and said, you know, oh, no, I was going to cast her in Lord of the Rings. And then Harvey Weinstein said, she's difficult. So it was a real thing that was happening. You do address an elf in the living room that I think is important to talk about. I, I addressed it in my last special because I think it just lets people take a deep breath when we acknowledge that 
you know, we expect victims to also be saints, I believe is how you put it. We expect our victims to sort of be perfect and dress frumpy and to never have done a sex scene before. And we want our victims to be a very certain way. Mm -hmm. And look, most people are flawed. And I'm no math elite, but by that logic, victims will have flaws and will have past and have made mistakes. And to, you know, bring up what happened with Asia, am I saying that right? Mm -hmm. I think is really important um, just because it helps us just with the elephant in the living room, because I think for people that are trying to warm out of the discomfort of talking about this or believing that this is happening or who are struggling with, you know, a major reorganization of sort of global <laughs> institutions and paradigms, they want to go, oh, see, yep. see. And look, even if you do need to that to delete that, there's still, what, 86 other women <laughs> <laughs> that haven't had that happen. Right. But was that something when that happened that you were like, or it's just, it is what it is. It, you know, I chose in the book to confront that completely head on. And as you say, I think it's an, a really important point that can be too hard to talk about sometimes. Mm-hmm. It, these are not perfect people. They're human beings. Mm-hmm. Uh, very often in a case like that, uh, Someone like Asia Argento both having a completely credible claim of abuse about Harvey Weinstein that was mm-hmm. backed by a lot of evidence mm-hmm. and also then paying out, a, you know, a guy who was 17 at the time after he claimed that they had had a, an underage sexual encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not inconsistent psychologically that right. people who have been preyed upon then sometimes are also people who are accused of these kinds of crimes. Hurt I mean, people that's, hurt people. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's you know an old idea and a true true yeah. one and in a case like that you know there are no absolutes and mm-hmm. these stories shouldn't be about broad character judgments they should That's be right. about the fact pattern. That's right. And and I run into it all the time in the earlier reporting too with someone like Rose McGowan where it, very unfairly to her you know all these executives were constantly saying but she's crazy. She sounds crazy. Sure. sure. And here's the thing First of all, Rose is not crazy. She turned out to be right about all this stuff. But I was constantly making the argument, and I think it's a really correct one and a journalistically important one, that someone being having the appearance of instability Mm -hmm. in other parts of their life, not being the ideal witness in the way that you were instability. I don't. I don't know. Yeah. What what is that? that. I don't know. Can't imagine. I've heard about. I've heard this. (laughs) That is not germane to whether they're claim holds up mm-hmm. necessarily That's right. you know that my judgment about rose's allegation was about how many people had seen her come out of that room mm-hmm. how had she told the story consistently mm-hmm. over the year what did the documents she had in terms of this settlement she had with harvey weinstein look like you know the whole trail of witnesses and corroborating pieces of evidence and that all held up and so to then say you know this person isn't an ideal witness or doesn't present in a way that we like, mm-hmm. uh, so we're going to throw out all that evidence is is wrong. It's unjournalistic, and it opens the door to all of these mm-hmm. things, like you know, slut shaming, mental health shaming. You know, mm-hmm. it it becomes character driven and smear based rather than fact driven. You know, and I think it's important for people who do want to say things like that examine why. You know, uh, she did some nude scenes. 
Okay, there's that. You know, she dated Marilyn Manson. There's that. That we do sort of hold in our hippocampus a couple things that, you know, conflate and make some generalizations so that we can dismiss someone. So I think, you know, it's a good opportunity to sort of, you know, illuminate your own cultural sort of conditioning and pre- prejudices when we do want to, you know, call a woman crazy who who comes forward. That's just worth examining. Well, and also, you know, without referring to Rose specifically, so often in stories of sexual violence, you are dealing with people who uh, either were on some level more vulnerable to this kind of exploitation That's because right. they had a difficult background or because of their state of mental health, um, who then as a result in part of this incredible moment of trauma uh, further suffer in terms of their mental health. Mm-hmm. And so they're not always going to present in this picture-perfect way. Also, I mean, There's I can... There's real damage there. And I can say this, you probably can't. Like, she was raised in a cult. I mean, the, the girl, she comes from, what she was up... Well, right, in Rose's case specifically, yeah. she had a very, very difficult background. She's pretty sane, given the circumstances. Uh, she she is sharp as a tack and, you know, was, was so much more right about these circumstances than any of the naysayers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just think that's a really important conversation to talk about the way we want our victims to behave, the way we want our victims to appear, the way we want them to look, the way we want their, you know, their work to have been. And, you know, this was not just, you know, hot actresses either. You know, I think that that Rose already, you know, uh, having done nude scenes and stuff, we have to understand a lot of these women are were targets because of that reason. Because they were women that, you know, wouldn't have the resources to defend themselves, would already have the cards stacked against them, were already vulnerable in some way, you know. So it's it's not, um, you know, uh, lost on Harvey that that's a really easy target who can't defend herself. It's a conversation I've had with a, a number of sources in those stories where they, they have theorized that that's part of why they were targeted, targeted in the that, first place, that they betrayed some kind of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And um, but it was not just actresses. I mean, this was costume designers. These were producers. These were event planners. These were assistants. You know, these you know, for people that want to think of actress as a pejorative term of a a woman who wants attention or whatever sort of narrative you have in your head. These were not just actresses. You know, I think that's the very first vignette in the very first of the New Yorker Weinstein stories was about a woman who's not even in the the industry. Mm -hmm. All of those stories have a mix of famous people, not famous people. Mm -hmm. And and more than that, I think what made me so convinced that this story mattered Mm -hmm. was that these patterns didn't seem exclusive to Harvey Weinstein or even to Hollywood. Right. It's about the abuse of power, which unfolds in industry after industry. But you really... um you know, it's fascinating. Uh, I, I, as I was reading this, I was like, God, we really do need our victims to behave in a very specific way, you know, especially with the uh, Matt Lauer stuff, which, you know, the Matt Lauer stuff is, is, is truly mind blowing. Uh, it, it's this, this man got me through 9-11. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it, you know, I think before this book, it was really hard to understand what this was, um, you know, because I think people are so afraid to say the word rape. It's so uncomfortable to say. It's such a bummer to say that, you know, we say the word sexual assault and then people fill in the blanks of what happened. Um, and the, and the two, I believe it's two women who really had explicit uh, rape allegations against uh Lauer, you know, they did such a difficult thing 
such a difficult thing. And I, I feel like I'm qualified to be able to say that, you know, a lot of people want to go, well, they texted afterwards. You know, I think it's really important that people understand psychologically when someone has committed a violent act against you, a lot of times it is your instinct to keep yourself safe and to placate the person, to ameliorate the situation, you know. Um, you know, so I think just for anyone that wants to go, but they, the girl texted with him afterwards. How could anything bad have happened, you know? Well, and one of the things that these sources have done that's so valuable for all of us and our understanding of these issues is to talk in a completely candid and honest way, mm-hmm. warts and all, about yep. what those interactions look yep. like. And w- one of those two rape allegations is from a woman who talked to The New York Times. Uh, one of them is from a, a young journalist named Brooke Nevels, who yep. ends up playing a major role in, in this book. And she really has done us all a service, I think, in being very, very transparent about mm-hmm. the whole process. The fact that she was too drunk to consent by her account and then also said no to a specific sex act mm-hmm. and he went ahead with it anyway. Okay. Um, that it was embedded in this situation where he was the most powerful guy at a company that she mm-hmm. was s- striving to succeed in. Mm-hmm. And the way and a man she- who was, just sorry to bring this back with the Harvey Weinstein, it's funny, a man who, I mean, we've both been on, around him a lot. He's engaging, he's charismatic, he looks everyone in the eye, he shakes everyone's hand. Charming, handsome People guy. People love this. I mean, he's literally got us through 9-11. Well, and... and I, since this is a kind of a memoir as well, I'm upfront about the fact that he was something of a mentor to me mm-hmm. and someone I looked up to and who gave me advice and was supportive of my work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, a couple of things. One is someone like Brooke Neville's being transparent not only about this allegation of violent crime, which mm-hmm. is difficult enough to talk about, but then also about the way in which in the aftermath of something like that, there is a process of... Uh, wanting to convince the powerful guy that you're afraid of that everything is okay yep, because you're scared for your career, mm-hmm. but also even more complicatedly wanting to convince yourself. That's right. It's something right. that she talks about that she went through a period mm-hmm. after that of desperately wanting to say this incident that made me literally bleed for days. Mm-hmm. That was so upsetting to me. Maybe, maybe it can be okay. Yes. And, and also you're, you know, when you, decide that, you know, a survivor should behave a certain way after they're attacked. You're judging someone's trauma response. I mean, some of us are fight, some are flight, some are freeze. It is a very strong fight response to go placate the attacker, make things less dangerous for yourself, or you're in some kind of denial or disassociated and everything's fine. Everything's got to be fine, you know? And to be clear, you know, this isn't, I think, the thing we're all afraid of, which is, you know, recategorizing the facts. Mm -hmm recasting what happened. Mm -hmm. She has always been consistent in describing the fact pattern, Mm -hmm. but she also acknowledges that for a time afterwards, she, she wanted there to be some, some other thing, a, Mm -hmm. a consensual, respectful rapport. Mm -hmm. And then there were subsequent encounters that she also says were non-consensual, at which point she, she did ultimately months later just say, I can't anymore. Yeah. But that's a really complicated situation, not the initial incident, but the aftermath. That's right. And I, again, I think she does us all a service by talking about it so openly. I think so, too. And I think a lot of women, you know, don't come forward about stuff because of their own behavior afterwards. You know, like, well, I'm the one that screwed up because I texted back with an exclamation mark. So who am I to <laughs> be yep. a victim? You know, so I think that's incredibly important. Um, I'm going to ask you some sort of, you know, speed round questions. When Harvey called you and he said the cartoon villain line of you couldn't save someone you loved. So now you want to save everyone. 
such an ominous, it's such bad writing. The, the, there is so much, there are so many cases in this without revealing sources and methods on any one given scene. You know, there's an author's note up front saying basically when you hear a, a direct quote, it's it's from some authoritative source at the time, right. either a primary account or a recording or whatever. Right. Um, and there are so many cases in the reporting for this book writ large where there is just such overwritten movie dialogue. <laughs> And then, you know, the fact checker li- like literally listens to the audio of it yeah. and is like, wow, people people really said that shit. And, and you know, there, I guess there is something that happens when you're in the midst of these heightened events where mm-hmm. everyone does start talking like they're in a Marvel movie or something. Just, <laughs> just like conversations about destiny and family. And yeah. In my case, it was particularly weird because that line wasn't even that surprising because for months, Harvey Weinstein had been sending legal threat letters that were all about my pedophile uncle who I'd right. never met and my sister having been assaulted yeah. and made an allegation against a powerful guy. Uh, you know, all of this sort of stuff that never was convincingly germane to the reporting yeah. in any way, but I guess was just designed Grasping to straws. Yeah. Uh, undercut and upset me and, um, you know, convince my bosses that in some way I was mm-hmm. compromised too close to it. Actually, all terms that get directed at my women's sources all the time, you know, yeah. it's too emotional. It's too close to it. Um, but it became very personalized. And, and I've come to understand that's a little bit just part of the weirdness of this job, that every story I report, there is an effort to attack not only the sources, but also me and mm-hmm. to do so in as personal a way as possible. Did that line, though, at all feel like he was implying that Woody Allen's guilty? You couldn't. Am, am I, I would assume he doesn't know anything more than I probably he knows less than the, the average person who looks at the actual court records, because mm-hmm. in in the events of, the, of this reporting, he gets in touch with Woody Allen and mm-hmm. then like his credit card receipts show him purchasing a sort of a pro Woody Allen book by a Woody Allen fan laying out all the arguments, you know, that my sister was crazy or brainwashed. He basically started doing research, taking a page out of Woody Allen's playbook in order to figure out how to deal with you. Right. Very, very strange and not that effective tactic. Although he did manage to get me fired over it. So it worked for a little while. I'm sorry. I have a little rant that you probably can't participate Please. in. Please. When can we just say that Woody Allen's movies aren't that good? Can, can at some point can someone just say one out of every four movies is good because he <laughs> casts someone? Kate Blanchett, of course that movie's going to be good. Joaquin Phoenix, the, I his movies are fucking boring. I'm sorry, there I you you can just if you need to set this <laughs> one sit, out, I'll set this one. I just Thanks, it's Wendy. just it's always like gorgeous women in olive cargo shorts. <laughs> Like sleeping with married guys. I don't need to see more rich women in the Upper East Side fighting. I'm good. Kathy Griffin told this story at Largo once. It's now in her book about how she had dinner with Woody Allen. This, oh, yeah. This is at, I think, Gloria Vanderbilt's house. And Woody Allen wouldn't, first of all, wouldn't talk to her, which is so crazy. When comics won't talk to comics, like there's just, it's just so bizarre. And she was just like pulling teeth trying to get him to talk to her. He wasn't, he, I don't think he even knew who she was. <laughs> and, uh, he asked, uh, he wouldn't talk to her, and she asked him what his favorite TV show was. I remember this from her. Any guesses what the answer was, Benton? I read the book, but I can't remember. Hannah Montana. Oh, good one. <laughs> That's Woody Allen's favorite, favorite TV show. Are we fucking done here? Can we move on, please? You're canceled. I'm good. Like, I just, like, I'm good. Yuck. <laughs> 
Zola, 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 Zola. This is a genius company that you're going to need because it's engagement season. Everyone's getting engaged. I'm sure you've seen them on your Instagram. Everyone's blessed. They're highly favored. They're bragging about their engagement, their journey. Uh, I think it's engagement season because it's holiday time and everybody actually has time to propose. But um, they're telling me that according to a Zola survey, 96% of couples think that planning their wedding was stressful. Yet you think an 86% suffered stress-induced symptoms like insomnia, breakouts, and lower sex drive. That totally happened to me. Starting to plan a wedding made me so anxious. I started breaking out and I was like, I love you, but I cannot get sits over this. So I was actually so overwhelmed that we actually kind of held off on digging right in because for me, it was just like the logistics, the registry and the RSVPs. And the, I just, I started getting super overwhelmed. So I wish I had known about Zola, but now I do. I wish I had known that you have to book venues in advance. I wish I had known you have to get like a website now. And I don't know. I just, this company is freaking awesome because they make wedding planning easier, less stressful with wedding websites, registries, invites. They have a guest list manager all in one place. They have free website designs. You heard me. I said free Website designs, highest rated registry of all time, speaks for itself, beautiful, affordable invites and paper. They're going to help you collect your addresses, track online RSVP. This is like having a wedding planner. Jesus. Because they have a guest list manager. Uh, Zola has helped 1 million couples get married. Wow. That's amazing. Sign up for Zola.com slash Whitney today and get your free personalized paper sample. Use code SAVE5050 and get 50% off your save the dates. That's Zola.com slash Whitney. Promo code SAVE50. Do it, girl. Say I do to Zola. Did I just come up with their slogan? So this book is harrowing. Uh, the fact that you were being followed, first of all, it's so funny to me that um, these former Mossad agents, this black cube, I mean, sounds like, I mean, like, like literally a Marvel movie version of a spy company would be called Black Cube. First of all, the fact that they were following the wrong person because there was someone in your building that looked like you, I would love to see that guy. I, I want to get his number. <laughs> who was it? I know, <laughs> but he's hot. Like, who is that guy? I, yeah, I, and I have the pictures, too, because they were surveilling him, and ultimately, yeah. well, I don't want to spoil the whole yeah. plot, but I get a hold of all their surveillance material, yeah. and um, uh, <laughs> he didn't look that much like me. <laughs> Whenever someone's like, this person looks like you, it always hurts my feelings. Uh, well... <laughs> I think my, my, I have to go back to the pictures, but I think my anxiety when I saw that material was, um, is he better looking than me? <laughs> the guy from Sex in the City, the, uh, uh, what was it, Samantha's boyfriend? It was probably him. I, I, I think they were following a better looking version of me. <laughs> um, the fact that in 2019, almost 2020, that journalists are being followed, intimidated, stalked, um, gaslit, how? It's not great. It's, How? You know, I've now done a lot of reporting on this sort of underbelly of the private intelligence world, and I think it's an industry that has perfectly valid applications but also needs to do a really hard reassessment mm -hmm. of where their ethical red lines are. And is the onus on the companies such as NBC to protect its journalists? I would have loved to uh, felt more protected and not been cut loose and fired in the middle of being on the run. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, in NBC's defense, they do have a security department. And I did I went to that security department while I was still employed there. Mm -hmm. And it's not really um, 
incumbent on news organizations to stop this kind of aggressive surveillance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that news organizations can help by breaking tough stories of this type, right. and that all of that reporting could have come out mm-hmm. uh, at NBC. Um, and I think the fact that the New Yorker put out the reporting exposing that espionage operation right. helps create accountability. Right. But that's indirect. I think on the the kind of the direct front, uh, the criminal justice system can play a role, and there there is uh, an active criminal investigation into this particular surveillance operation and it's a plot point in the book Mm -hmm. that i have to grapple with whether to become a witness in that process um i mean the fact that the da did not press charges after you had this i mean for amber's recording which in the podcast you have to listen to recording it is so bone chilling and sickening and and angering isn't she an amazing she's incredible she's this woman is a badass she's such a badass (laughs) this woman not only wore a wire around this you know cartoon monster um known for being truculent uh but she like a gangster had to destroy all the recordings and made a backup recording that she like made a fake email and sent it to herself it's so cool. It's so cool. She did everything right. and She's salt. And she got, you know, she is. She <laughs> really of, is. Yeah. Kind of. And, like, she took the payout uh, and figured out a way to get the evidence out and completely screw him anyway and create accountability. She outwitted, like, the DA's office and all of his security right. people. Even when the DA's office was completely crooked about this, yeah. that was the consensus of even a lot of people in the NYPD who were involved in this investigation. Yeah. They had, they had pressed charges on much less. That's the argument that the cops made. And the DA's office says, you know, uh, they have a lot of elaborate explanations, but in my view, very few of them hold water, right. and they should be held accountable for not pressing charges in that case because other people allegedly got hurt afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, but Amber Gutierrez saved the day on that, and yeah. she preserved the evidence, and she ultimately got it to me in such a skillful, deft way. I loved hearing her story after the fact when she finally was out of the woods and could talk about it more, and I hope people have the same reaction. when It's, it's the like thrilling. It's thrilling. Yeah. And then it is even more thrilling because you're like, this actually happened. Like, it's entertaining on its own, and then it's thrilling. Um, Also, just seeing someone who's that conscientious Mm -hmm. and ethical. Mm -hmm. I mean, she had, she was smeared and made out to be a hustler Uh and a hooker. And, you know, I I had all these conversations with, I can say this, because this was an on-the-record quote we heard, you know, David Boies, for instance, would say, you know, well, she's a hooker. And David Boies is Harvey Weinstein's lawyer. Super kind of high-profile celebrity lawyer, Democratic hero, argued all these big cases. Um, Trash. I mean, did not acquit himself, shall we say, in the most noble of ways, Mm -hmm. uh, representing Harvey Weinstein and going after his victims. Uh, But he and everyone else in the orbit of this story just wrote her off Mm -hmm. and worse, smeared her. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually she But again, a perfect target. Yeah. A perfect target, you know, because... Well, she was a lingerie model. She mm-hmm. barely spoke English. Who's going to believe her? But but she's an interesting counterpoint, actually, to a lot of the very, very uh, uh, vulnerable people who I think were then subject to arguments that they were unstable in some way. That's right. She had all these spurious arguments about her character and reputation and her sexual past thrown at her. Mm-hmm. But Amber Gutierrez is fascinating to me because she's actually so nailed down yeah and so stable calm and has her shit so together Mm -hmm. that she just ran circles around all these people and Mm -hmm. that's not to say that it was easy for her or that it wasn't traumatic but she is 
an impressive example of someone who actually held way more of the cards than anyone bargained This 22-year-old lingerie model that hardly spoke English. Yep. Was, like, clowning on everybody. Yeah, and you can hear in the tape, I mean, this is the, the framing that we used in the podcast episode where we tell her story. You can hear when you know her fuller story that she's actually playing him when mm-hmm. she goes back in for that police sting. Right. And... And she, you know, it's she wins in the end. Like she, it's it it puts it made me have goosebumps because you know she had to go upstairs with him. It was a last minute surprise, and she left her coat on purpose so that she could go back and get her coat. Like it just, it's really. And she says such a striking thing about that, which is so also a reflection of how insightful she is. I say to her because I guess misogyny and even I'm underestimating her. Like, oh, is that a thing that the cops told you to do? Yeah, and she's like, no, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, no, that's because I'm a woman and my mother always taught me you need an escape route. That's right. And I mean, in my defense, I I, I thought I had been told by us, others in the investigation right, right. that to she, be fair I think to others tried to take credit for that. But right. what she said, and I was, I, it's such a memorable moment was, you know, my mom always told me you're a woman, you need a way out at all times. And that she came up with that idea of you leave a jacket behind strategically. So powerful. Like, I just, like, I was, like, literally on the plane, and I was just, like, squealing. And, you know, one of the great things built into her story, which you don't get in all cases, but I I love running into it when it does happen, is she's doing great. Yeah. Her modeling career is doing great. Mm -hmm. She's on catwalks everywhere. Mm -hmm. She's doing, you know, commercial shoots all the time, and, and... uh, seems to be She's on the number two podcast She's in the, the world. <laughs> number two, behind only Joe Rogan. <laughs> so uh, the the podcast incredible. You gotta you have got to listen to it. It is so gripping and it's so fun to listen at the same time as they come out. While I was reading this, I had such a nice time being able to put like voices and faces to the characters. Um, I know I have to let you go soon. I refuse. You're gonna be kicking. And this is not consensual. <laughs> Time's up on me. I will. I will stay for you because I would ask. What else do you? Need I'm gonna do winning? speed round questions. Okay, okay. A lot of people want to know. Um, I don't know. I can't. I feel weird asking this because I, I don't want your expression to um, let anything. A lot of people. Epstein comes up in the book. There's some. You're reading this book and you think you're just reading about Weinstein, and then there's just like banger after banger, like right at the finish line. It's like Trump, Epstein, Matt Lauer. You're just like, damn. There's so much. Um, but Epstein, you know, comes up. Is there more to come with Epstein? So I broke a story about. MIT's secret fundraising relationship with Epstein pretty recently. He is a great example of a nexus of powerful interests protecting each other and covering up their close connections. And uh, I do think that there is more to dig into there. Which is just important because, you know, this is not American, that the more money you have, the more you can just cover up your heinous crimes. You know, this is to be dismantling the systems that allow powerful people to just break the law. I mean, sadly, that is the most American thing. And I think we all need to work hard to change that. And I hope that one of the consequences of these incredibly brave sources speaking, I mean, that in that case, again, it was a, mm-hmm. a woman named Signe Swenson who mm-hmm. saved all of the emails of literally people in leadership roles at MIT saying, please cover up this Epstein donation. It's literally wild. They're like, this needs to be under the radar. Please make sure this is quiet in yeah. emails. Uh, right. Subject line, Epstein money. I mean, it's <laughs> it's unbelievable. I wasn't sure. Like, you know, how was, do you work at MIT? <laughs> I was right. I was finishing the book and like about to start doing press for it. And the, you know, champagne problem to have, but the, the trouble you you've had to juggle this stuff mm. when you're 
pushing a book. Pulitzer Prizes. Yeah, totally. I have. It's exhausting. <laughs> okay, okay. When, <laughs> when you're pushing a book, you're not doing new work, right? That's right. That's so, right. You're looking backwards. And so I was in this frustrating period where I'm like, okay, now I need to buckle down and just focus on this book for a couple of months. And then this lead came in, and I wasn't even sure, like Epstein, MIT, you know, Julie K. Brown did such amazing work Mm. on Epstein. And is there really more to say? I mean, I was asking the question that you just asked me. And then seeing those emails, Mm -hmm. I was like, well, better drop everything and just do this story right away. Do you think he killed himself? You know... I think that uh, even the most innocuous scenario of this is the kind of uh, negligence that happens all the time mm. in the prison system mm-hmm. and gets covered up is is pretty worthy of note. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and look, I, I do think that it's worth uh, journalists pressing for more answers about what went down there and how. And when we... We're finishing the book and writing the Epstein parts. I had to decide what language to use around yeah. his suicide. And I think, you know, and we looked at, okay, what is the, the post saying? What is the time saying? That I think ultimately we uh, hedged a little. I think it's, you know, dead of an apparent suicide. Mm-hmm. <sighs> too mu- it's too much. It's too... <laughs> Much a lot. Do you put it's extra? Any, do you put it's a very extra. <laughs> it's a very do you put extra. anything in email? Are you super paranoid about what you can put on email? Do you have like five cell phones? Uh, yeah. I don't want to uh, get into all of the security stuff I do, but there, you know, I can say what I say in the book, which is at a certain point in this process, I do uh, get in pretty deep with some whistleblower attorneys who kind of furnish me with a an iPod that's only connected to the internet through a Wi-Fi hotspot that was purchased in cash and yeah i have like a code name on it which initially was candy That's like, right. <laughs> why do i have to be candy <laughs> maybe literally anything why am i getting can't... sexually harassed in my story about sexual harassment <laughs> can you not call me i think candy? what i said at the time was like why i i sound like a, a nice midwestern girl who shouldn't have moved to la <laughs> C-A-N-D-E-E. That would be candy with a K, I feel like. Yep. I also love that in The Guardian, they refer to John Lovett as your long-suffering partner. <laughs> Did you see that? Is that Was that a quote from me? Or that, was no, that, that was so... That, that was them was, editorializing? That was them. Yeah, I was like, I need to read some articles just to make sure that I'm like up on everything. It was like in his long-suffering partner, That's John. That's so funny. I, that, I mean, that does sound like something I would also say. And also is fairly accurate. I'm, I am... I f- you two are so perfectly matched. I, I, think, I think if you were around any more or any more available, he'd probably be like, uh, I'm busy. I mean, in his defense... I think it's hard to finish this book and not feel like, wow, sympathies to John Lovett for putting (laughs) up with this bullshit. But if you knew John, you would know that he is equally culpable. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He he is not uh, better roses all the time either. (laughs) He has a lot of work. I mean, we're both very high maintenance people is the long and short of it. That's correct. Um, Everyone wants to know when you're getting married. Are you ready to talk about it yet or no? Yeah, it's funny. I gave an interview. uh, I'm, I'm officiating, obviously. I mean, we should be so lucky. I mean, correct. If you guys can afford me, I'll think about it. Oh, my God. You probably do perform at weddings. I get asked to perform at, uh, to officiate weddings a lot. I officiated one wedding, uh, and I killed it. So I am I am what it's called. Uh, what is it? I'm a priest. What am I? Um, like a unitarian What is it minister. when you're a minister? I got the online certification, and they did get divorced a year later. 
Cool. So cool my story. batting average is pretty good. We got to work on your sales pitch. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, not great. I did this interview as we were launching the podcast where I talked about all this, you know, substance of these incredible sources who were speaking for the yeah. first time in the podcast and yeah. so forth. And, you know, we talked about that for half an hour. And then it was People Magazine and this lovely gentleman from People Magazine then said, like, have you planned the wedding? Are you planning the wedding yet? And yeah. I, you know, just a tiny little answer at the end. I said, uh, like, honest to God, I'm so overwhelmed by work right now. We haven't even thought about it. And yeah. he's going to be so busy for 2020 political stuff. Like, yeah, when, are, uh, when are we supposed to do this damn wedding? Yeah. Maybe it's a 2021 thing. And then the, the People magazine headline, this is the most people take on it ever. It's like, <laughs> just headline, like, Ronan Farrow too busy to plan his wedding. Oh! Wedding not happening until 2021. That's uh, people. God, God so bless people. you, people. I cannot. The, they I, did mention the podcast low down. I, uh, <laughs> but it was like four paragraphs of wedding coverage. I really do feel like um, this is going to be a real competition with the vows. Oh, God. You know? Well, so I actually, um, it would not be a shock to anyone who knows my biography to uh, hear that I don't really have, like, the most positive associations with the institution of uh, marriage and uh, maybe long-term relationships in general. Yeah, I mean, don't know what you're talking about. A little natural skepticism there. Uh, So I also similarly don't stand on ceremony about it and feel like, why not just get a lope? Oh, but I okay. think he thinks his his mother will uh, have a conniption. Ha- yeah, yeah, have yeah. a conniption. <laughs> I might agree with you, and I think that's fair of her. Correct. So you could do both, also. Yeah, yeah. I'm planning. You guys, I'm planning this wedding. I got it. Honestly, just get it done for us, Whitney. I know that you have more industries to go dismantle and to topple. We didn't even get to the war on peace. This book I, is so important uh, for so many reasons. I, I'm just going to throw this out real quick because you guys are going to be on break and you're going to have some time to read. And I, I really recommend that you guys read this because um, although this is not as sexy, not that assault and rape uh, is sexy, I just mean this is something I think that's a little less clickbaity in terms of how our State Department is essentially um, being depleted. And what um, what does this mean for the average person? Like what country should we not visit in case we get kidnapped, there will not be someone in an embassy. So this is a great time to be reading War on Peace. I'm really glad. I didn't expect you to bring that up. And it really means a lot to me because I'm very proud of it. And there were brave whistleblowers who made this possible, too. Mm -hmm. It's a great time for it because uh, everything in the news, all the impeachment stuff is partly a consequence of the dismantling of our diplomatic Mm. apparatus. And you see these great career diplomats get up on the Hill and talk during the, the impeachment process about trying to maintain professionalism Mm -hmm. in a setting where actually there aren't even diplomats on the calls anymore sometimes. And the word diplomat, I know. You guys are busy and you're, you know, you're doing your laundry and you're driving and you have kids, you're doing lots of things. Diplomat, I mean, these are people that are around the world whose job it is to just calm shit down. It it was important to me because we don't have as much fiction about the dramatic stories of diplomats as we do about spies or soldiers. It's easy to sell explosions to actually explain that the work of diplomacy, to use the word you used earlier, is actually sexy Mm -hmm. and is important. And it's not necessarily as flashy all the time, but Mm -hmm. these are the people who get you out of a hostage situation if you're an American abroad, Mm -hmm. who are the first gatekeepers deciding who makes it into our country, who negotiate our way out of conflict so that we don't have to have our men and women die in those right. conflicts and who maintain stability around Those people are basically have just been fired. Those people have been fired en masse and 
we have had a series of administrations that have filled that void with a more and more militarized posture around the world. And I was in Afghanistan and Pakistan working for the State on Department. Vacation. On vacation. <laughs> chilling, chilling in Kabul. Honeymoon spot. And, and oh, good idea. <laughs> Look, Afghanistan is quite beautiful. Uh, I, I, I was actually Googling Pakistan is also gorgeous. Pakistan is gorgeous. Pa- Pakistan is very green and mountainy. And We're and, saying go there. We're saying there's no diplomats, but go there. <laughs> it's, and sadly, partly as a, a result of, uh, well, a lot of forces mucking up that region um, is not the safest place to be. But it, what I saw firsthand and then what I extrapolate on in this book is the stories of incredibly brave diplomats at a time when we are sidelining that profession and all of our safety is threatened as a result. Men are heroes too, guys. Don't worry. We love you guys too. Men and women, heroes all around. This is what a good like uh, stocking stuffer duo. If you read both of these books over the break, you will be the smartest person in the office and you will kill every party you go to. You know, bragging rights. I have not seen those two together. I've been moving, I've been in a different city for tour every day and I Can haven't. Can I tell had the you, you have to... the best cover art of easily of anybody, don't you think? God bless wonderful artists who worked on both. Um, and I am also a nightmare backseat driver in every aspect of everything I do. Uh, creatively i joke about it on the podcast and it got a big laugh from the producers working on the podcast because they know i'm annoying Did you, or do you get into the editing <sighs> i could I'm tell like... i can tell because i was listening to the one last, last night with rowena mm-hmm. and zelda right and there was a you would come in with some of your voiceover and i could just it was so tight it's i i do a lot of mucking around with scripts and mucking around in the pro you tools can ask session my producers and... i have nothing i don't get involved does she get into the pro all. tools session does she write <laughs> writing the fader on different elements just... i literally am like cut this point <laughs> One second. There's a little delay there. I don't like it. I come and I re-record. And, and similarly with the art, I so good. Like I had a I had a conversation with a director whose work I really like recently, who w- was saying like oh, I'm I'm working on the end credits sequence for this this superhero movie that I'm I'm finishing, and like they brought me Helvetica to begin with. <laughs> And I, like anyone else would have been like, you're a fucking lunatic. I was like, oh my God. I shudder. <laughs> like I was, I was in this, a it's, wonderful artist, um, uh, did this Greg Kulik, uh, did the, the hand and mouth mo- uh, motif. I you know, wanted something so a lot the, the Godfather, like a very simple image that distilled. So noir. Very noir, uh, very much an homage to Saul Bass, who did all those great mm-hmm. Hitchcock posters. Yep, 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 yep. And I was literally in Photoshop and he put up with this god bless him like okay. cutting out with the the polygon lasso the letters to get that saw bass jagged it, it's almost like those serial killers like n- the notes where they would cut yeah that out. was a little bit the idea and then look how i ruined his book pretty much every page is dog-eared oh and you know another little easter egg in this book is the there's a lot of visual stuff that goes into the print edition there are illustrations which uh-huh. i'm just seeing as you flip through that are done by my sister and what? she's a character in the book. I love the little black cubes. And they're black cubes. By the way, I really, I really. Oh wait, the oh she did the the pens. She did and the stuff? internal, yeah. Oh, that's so cool. They're the section break illustration. I wanted to do a little like a Harry Potter thing of interstitial visuals. Look at the the, the these are my notes. I don't know if you want them or if you need. To uh, yeah, take do you them have with a, you? For, for the paperback? Do you have do you have some notes? Oh, I did have qu- I did have a question for you. Okay. How do you feel about the algorithm in our news cycle? I was just in West Virginia and remember Benton when I said, "Send me a picture of your Huffington Post page." Remember that? Yes. Um, and it was completely different. It was completely. I was getting different news in West Virginia. Wait, what was your news and what was his news? My news was all Donald Trump. Okay. Because you because you love Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's just a fan. Right. Um, and uh, mine were about how um, 
uh, mine were about Biden's bad sort of his, uh, history on like lead and water. Um, That's very sophisticated. Something about guns, something. I, I took a okay, screen. Okay, so you're like a it. hard policy news But consumer. was it about where I was? Because then I also just get dog rescue videos. Okay. Most of my Huffington Post is dog rescue videos. By the way, God bless you for the dog rescue stuff. I, oh, God. I sit, I consume all of your content, Whitney, as you know. <laughs> so funny. And I sit and I watch you save bees and I watch <laughs> you save dogs. And I'm like, I'm just crying looking at Violet and... What, does on. she have a home now? Yes. Violet's in San Diego. It makes with, me very happy. And, you know, it's something that I, we do, obviously, very different things, and you're, you know, changing the world on a global scale. But, you know, there is a, ha, actually been a little bit of a reckoning in animal abuse as well, like a little Me Too uh, in the animal world. Meow Too, as we call it. Um, even though I'm not really cats. I don't, I don't know anything about cats. I don't know how to rescue cats. I don't know what they care about. But um, because it's um, abusing, you know, women... Uh, children, anything vulnerable is the same uh, part of the brain as abusing animals. You know, they say whenever animal abuse is present, another kind of abuse is present. You I know? mean, not to be flip about it, but it, it is the classic serial killer tell. That's right. In That's all right. Fiction about serial That's killers. Right. But they say when when yep. a man is kicking the dog, he's just warming up. You know, and um, trafficking exotic animals. It's the same people that traffic humans, that traffic children. It's all. It's a billion dollar it industry. It seems so insane to me. It's so hard for me to understand the psychology. The state of mind you have to be in to... It's a psychopath. Hit, ...to kick or hit a dog. It's a psychopath, you know. So that's why I never have any compunction. I know you guys see me go after people. You know, sometimes I can't control myself on social media because it's the same part of the brain. So people that want to delineate animal abuse and human abuse, like, why would you care about animals? It's, it's the same thing. It's all it's all the same. Um, and uh, it's just that animal abuse is more socially acceptable. So that's the ostensible abuse. So my thing is, if that's going on in the front lawn, what's going on in the house with those kids? And, you know, for me... Um, you know, the way we treat animals is teaching this next generation how to treat those that are more powerless than them. Humans, you know. It's really it's, important. It's so, that's why I think it's such a big deal to me. It teaches empathy to the next generation. When we take our kids to zoos and we see, you know, the they, because all they care about is animals. They don't really care about human beings and they're really going, oh, this is how we treat something that has less power. There was an incredibly upsetting story in the Times. Jeffrey Gettleman wrote it. Really good reporting that required a lot of going to dangerous places in several different African countries about um, primate trafficking. It's and it just it, that story fucked me up. And nobody's. I mean, that's the thing with with everything that's going on with Michael Jackson. No one has really talked yet about all the animal abuse, um, the chubs and the, the bubbles and the chimps that he had. They were kept in cages so that they didn't develop any muscle mass. To to train a chimp requires a tremendous amount of abuse, electrocution, drugging. And this is another issue that I have um, with morning shows and these news shows is they have these animal trainers on. They have cubs on. Think about what has to happen to the mother of of a lion cub, you know, a lioness in order to get its cub away. Well, I know in the case of this particular reporting about primates that one of the tactics that gets used because the parents become violent and protective. Of course. If you try to take them away is, you know, they just wind up killing the, the parents. Yep. And orphaning the, the the children that they're taking. Yeah, and they'll and they'll kill their babies as well. You know, elephants in captivity. They know that it's a dangerous situation, so oftentimes, as soon as they have a baby, they'll try to kill it, um, or they'll succeed in killing it, um, or their reproductive system shuts down because they know it's dangerous. So when people say breeding in captivity, isn't that what you know makes conservation not true? Uh, most of the time, it's really hard to breed in captivity. Obviously, there's a complicated body of philosophy and law around this, and there are complicated discussions to be had about where you draw the line in terms mm -hmm. of distinguishing the yeah. treatment of different species. Yes. But I, I do think fundamentally it 
flows from the same problems we have as a species with racism that we don't automatically see like they're so genetically similar to us mm-hmm. it's it's so incumbent on us to treat I mean, the primate thing drives me crazy. The dolphin thing drives me crazy. crazy. These, these very sophisticated creatures mm-hmm. that we have very little insight into what's going on with them psychologically, but we mm-hmm. can tell they have incredibly complex and sophisticated reactions to things we do to them. Right. Like How, how have we been have, treating them so badly? These people have billions and billions billions of dollars. They say that if a zoo, an elephant is taken out of an elephant is usually the, you know, the biggest draw for a zoo. If you take an elephant out of a zoo, it'll go bankrupt almost immediately. These um, Barnum and Bailey, they have billions of dollars. You know, I know people who they have terrorized, they have paid neighbors to stalk and, uh, you know, sanctuaries that are trying to be set up. I mean, what goes on, um, you know, for me, like, I mean, I've had to move because my life has been in danger from these people are psychopaths, you know? I used to do coverage uh, on my midday cable news program. Yep, I remember. <laughs> of, of uh, like, animal rights issues mm-hmm. from, and have sort of legal analysts on and, and activists mm-hmm. who were arguing for sort of the, the extreme set that was arguing for, uh, like, personhood rights yeah. for... Uh, you know various types of animals and and it, there was a, a lot of logic to that actually mm-hmm. and i i yeah. covered it in part because i thought you know whether you go that far or not it's worth hearing that out and yeah. understanding the place of compassion that it comes from and mm-hmm. and covering stories of animal abuse is important yeah because it's just teaching the next generation compassion for those that are more voiceless than them you know yeah. it's just kind of that simple um i assume your next book is going to be about how nbc squashed other important content such as 1600 pen and NBC <laughs> wow that is a deep cut we that's funny we've all we've all been canceled <laughs> we've all, nbc has there is obviously a conspiracy that 1600 pen and whitney aren't still on nbc um so i love you i have to get you out of here I'm sure. Thank you for taking the time. This was a blast. You guys, get the podcast right now. Get the books right now. These books will get you laid consensually. Love it. (laughs) Thanks, Whitney. (laughs) 